The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 2 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC2. And this is Secret Church 2, Episode 3. The letters of the New Testament. 22 of the 27 books in the New Testament are letters, which is pretty much 40% of the, the New Testament. Close to 40%. Why, why are they written? Why are the letters so important? Why do we have the New Testament full of letters? Well, I think for two main reasons. Number one, the church is reproducing. It is growing. It is spreading like wildfire in the book of Acts. And they need ways to communicate in order to train up new believers. They need ways to get information about Christ for new believers, to spread the church. The church is reproducing, so they need the word. Ladies and gentlemen, please see a word right there. We need to study the word because we want to be a part of a reproducing church. We want to be a part of the gospel spreading from us to others to others to others. The word is not intended to be stagnant in the church. It's intended to be reproduced. That's why we have these letters being written to all these different people. The church is also relational. There's an intimacy that's there. It's why Paul says, and this is a great picture, when he's, talk, he's talking in Corinthians about living letters, and he says, our lives are living letters. You realize that our lives were intended to be a letter, just like the New Testament letters, a picture of who Christ is. The church is relational. Now, there's two groups of letters in the New Testament. The Pauline epistles, which is Romans all the way to Philemon, and then general epistles, which is Hebrew to Jew, Hebrews to Jude. And you got Hebrews in there that could go either way. The life and writings of Paul. We'll start with him. Paul wrote 13 New Testament letters. Now, that's not including... If you're thinking Paul wrote Hebrews, then it's not including that. But Paul wrote 13 New Testament letters, and they're ordered from the longest to the shortest. Nine of them are written to churches. Four of them are written to individuals. Now, before we dive into his letters, I want us to think about his life. Paul the person, born, name originally, Saul of Tarsus. and has a pretty diverse background. Pretty diverse background. Think about his background, who Paul is, the makeup of his person in three different ways. First of all, he had a Hebrew heritage. A Hebrew heritage. Philippians chapter 3 makes that pretty clear. It's, it's, it's his resume, Hebrew resume. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews. Then he had a Greek education, very well educated, and yet he was a Roman citizen. You put all that together, you've got a pretty powerful dude in the apostle, or in Saul at that point. And the beauty of what we see in the New Testament is how God takes the church's enemy and turns him in to the greatest proclaimer of the church in the New Testament. You realize that the one who persecuted the church from house to house, the one who was right there overseeing the stoning of Stephen, ended up, he's, he's in about a third of the New Testament. He writes only less than, uh, only next to Luke. Obviously, he writes the most books, but as far as amount of material, only Luke is ahead of him. The whole last part of the book of Acts is all about Paul. God's grace takes us from where, where we are to a place where we never could have imagined. Paul never could have pictured that. And praise God for his grace in our lives and where he takes us from to where we are. And where I pray that we will ask and plead for his grace to take us in the future, places we never could have imagined, all in the picture of this guy named Paul. He takes our background, and even those things that Satan intends for evil, 
God uses for good. Isn't this a great picture? All right, he was converted to Christ around 31 to 33 A.D. Around 31 to 33 A.D. is when he came to faith in Christ. Now, I want us to think about Paul the missionary. It's not until about 15 years later that he actually starts going out. We almost have this picture of Paul came to Christ and then all of a sudden he's preaching the gospel everywhere. Well, he starts getting together with believers and and let's not blame the early church at this point. You'd be a little nervous if Paul was in here right now. If he's the guy that was at your house last week and this week he's claiming to be a follower of Christ, then let's spend a little more time, Paul. And so there's about a 15-year window where, where Paul is now gaining some credibility and he's growing in his faith in Christ and he's seeing the Old Testament and seeing how it relates to Christ. You can only imagine. We don't know much about that 15 years, but you can only imagine what a journey it was for 15 years for this guy to see all of his Hebrew background opened up to the beauty of Jesus Christ. What an incredible picture. And then once that 15 years has passed, he goes out on his first missionary journey. Now, you've got some maps, page, I think, 13 and 14, um, that show these, these different journeys. But I want, I want us to kind of walk through these missionary journeys real quickly. Real quickly walk through them. After he'd been a Christian for 15 years, he's in, in the city of Antioch. Oh, how do you like that? Okay, Antioch is over there on the left. Antioch is where Paul's home base was, so to speak. Antioch was the church that was supporting him, encouraging him, building him up, and he was building them up. Acts chapter 11 gives us the picture of the church at Antioch. When you get to Acts chapter 13, verse 1 through 4, the church at Antioch lays their hands on Saul and Barnabas and sends them out, and they begin their first missionary journey. Approximately 1,400 miles. You see where they went. The blue, the blue on this, I know your maps are not color, but the blue on this map, the blue letters are the ones when he was going out. The first place they went was Cyprus. That was basically Barnabas' hometown. And so Paul and Barnabas go out there, and they're going to places that are familiar to them, places they know. They start in Cyprus, and they go north into some regions where, they, where, they, where they're familiar with. They're following the trade routes. They're going to mainly major cities. They're not going out into the country much. They're going to mainly major cities, which I would definitely not say is, is a precedent that we shouldn't go into the country, but into rural areas. But I do believe there is a deep need for us to see what Paul did in the city when we think about the urban centers in the United States of America and around the world. We need to take the Gospels to the city in a day where churches hibernate from the city. We need to embrace the city and the needs of Christ in the city. It's not easy. Ask Paul. It's not easy to go into the urban centers of the world, but that is where we need to take the gospel. So that's the picture up there. Approximately 1,400 miles. What he would do, basically his pattern, and it changed from place to place, but he'd go into a city. He'd find the synagogue. He'd go preach in the synagogue. He'd get kicked out of the synagogue most of the times, and then once he was out of the synagogue, he'd keep preaching, and then once everybody got mad at him there, then they would make him leave or throw things at him, or they would sneak him out late at night, and that was his pattern, and he just went from city to city, preaching, getting kicked out, and getting thrown out of the city. That was kind of the life of the Apostle Paul, the first missionary journey. In that time, he probably wrote the book of Galatians. He probably wrote the book of Galatians somewhere in there. The reason being, well, you'll notice he comes back to Antioch, but around this time, somewhere in here, with all these Gentiles that are coming to faith in Christ, and Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And so what's happening is there begins to be a big division between, well, mainly in the Jewish churches, now Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ, and they start to debate on how a Gentile can come to be a part of the people of God. 
And they start to make some rules and regulations. If you're going to become a part of people of God, people of God, you need to do this and that, namely circumcision. And so that leads to the Jerusalem Conference in, in 49, around 49 A.D. And you might put a note out to the side. That's Acts chapter 15 is when the Jerusalem Conference happens. They had been sent out on their first missionary journey, Acts 13. They come back by the end of chapter 14. And then in Acts chapter 15, you have this Jerusalem Conference where they discuss Jewish-Gentile conflict between them. We've got Paul at the Jerusalem Conference. Him and Barnabas are sit down, sent down from Antioch in order to be a part of this conversation. And there at the Jerusalem Conference, they decide how they're going to accept Gentiles into the church into the people of God. They go back to Antioch, and it's time for missionary journey number two. So they set out for their second missionary journey, a few, different, a few years long, about 2,800 miles. And they set out again from Antioch, and they come back to Antioch. It's their home base. During that time, he most likely writes the book of First and Second Thessalonians during that missionary journey. What you'll see, and if we, if we got that map, there it is. On the left, they start from Antioch, which is over on the far middle right of this map. They start again from Antioch, and they're going back to the regions where they've been before. And that was their plan. But then Paul gets this Macedonian call that says the gospel needs to go farther than these regions. And so they go all the way up, and they start going to the different places. They go over to Corinth, and they make their way down to Ephesus. They head back to Jerusalem, and then round it out back up at Antioch. Um, it's in Corinth on this missionary journey that he really starts to get a vision for going farther to the west, especially Rome at this point. And so when we see Paul come to his third missionary journey, he leaves Antioch, but he's not planning on going back. Some people even think he, he had fallen out of a little bit of a favor with some of, the, some of the church there. But he leaves his third missionary journey from Antioch, and they start going up some of the places they had been before. During this time, he spends about three years in Ephesus. And on this journey, he writes the book of Romans and then First and Second Corinthians. Now, he is in Corinth when he writes the book of Romans, which you see um, right over to the left is Corinth. That's near Rome. It's headed towards Rome. What he's doing is he's taking an offering to the saints who are down here in Jerusalem. The church needs some help and support. And while he's going there, he stops right about the middle of the map in Ephesus. And he spends some time with some of the church leaders there that he knew really well. And it's at that point they know that if he goes to, if he goes to Jerusalem, his life is at risk. And they're trying to dissuade him from going to Jerusalem. And what does Paul say? He said, guys, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I can finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Acts chapter 20, verse 22 through 24 is a huge passage. And then you get over to chapter 21 in Acts, and it's actually told Paul through a prophet that when he goes to Jerusalem, he would be bound. And the people there thought, well, maybe this will dissuade him. Prophet, tell him what you think. And listen to what Paul says. He says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I think we've heard testimony from tonight. People aren't surprised in parts of the world when they face persecution. It doesn't shock them. They know that it's a very real risk right in front of them. But they have said, 
I consider my life worth nothing to me. I will embrace whatever it takes to make the gospel known. That's the picture we see in Paul on his second, in his third missionary journey. You get to, he gets to Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, and he's falsely accused and arrested and basically spends about two years in, prone, in, in, in uh, prison there at Caesarea by the sea. And then he appeals to the emperor, to the Roman emperor, and then he is taken from Caesarea by the sea on a trip to Rome. You see, the trip to Rome goes from about 60 to 61 because there was a shipwreck in there about three months, as if anything else could go wrong for Paul. Even when he's in prison and being taken up to the emperor, he gets shipwrecked on an island there, and they spend three months, and then finally they get up to Rome where he has his first imprisonment. And this was basically a kind of house arrest where visitors could come and visit Paul, but he was in Rome, house arrest there, there and he writes the epistles that are, call, that are called the prison epistles. They're called the prison epistles, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, all written for imprisonment in Rome. Now, the last part of Paul's journey is there's a lot of evidence, a lot of people believe that Paul was released from that imprisonment for at least a very small window of final ministry. Where he went, exactly what he did during that time, not exactly sure. But then he was imprisoned again, and this imprisonment most likely led to Paul's death. His final imprisonment is when he wrote the pastoral epistles, including, as Johnny just mentioned, First and Second Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles. They're actually epistles, letters that are written to individuals, but they really address the church. You see Paul's concern for the church. It's an incredible picture of the church on Paul's heart as he's facing his last days on the earth. Paul the writer, you see here, I just put an, an overview of kind of the way Paul wrote some of his letters. But I want us to dive into each of these letters, and I want, you, want us to see how he wrote different things to different people at different times to emphasize the picture of the gospel, contextualizing the gospel in different places. The first letter that we have in the New Testament, probably my favorite book in the Bible, is the book of Romans. It's arguably the most influential, influential book in all of Christian history. Many people come to faith. Augustine came to faith, he said, because of reading the book of Romans, came to faith in Christ through this book. It was uh, Luther that basically said Romans, and in a sense Galatians 2, but Romans. Romans 1, 16 and 17, especially verse 17, the righteous will live by faith, was the catapult for the entire Protestant Reformation here in the book of Romans. Uh, it was John Wesley who was obviously using a great awakening by God to lead thousands and thousands of people to faith in Christ through his preaching. He actually came to faith in Christ. He was converted when he was at a Bible study where they were simply reading Luther's preface to the book of Rome. They were reading the introduction to the book. John Wesley came under conviction of the picture of the gospel. It's by grace through faith. It's in Romans, and he came to faith in Christ. It's had a huge mark on the influence of, of Christian history. Romans was written to Jewish and Gentile Christians, obviously, who were living in Rome. There was some tension there still of how do Jews and Gentiles go together. The primary theme is really twofold, the righteousness of God, it's mentioned over 60 times in the book of Romans. The righteousness of God is emphasized over and over again. And then the gospel of God. From the very beginning, the gospel of God, which the, was promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And then you get to Romans 1, 16 and 17, kind of the theme verses. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the righteousness from God. It's the righteousness from God for all who believe. The righteous will live by faith. These, these go together, righteousness and the gospel. Because if God is righteous, if we don't have a gospel, then we're really in trouble. The gospel is the good news about how we can be made right with God. And that's the book of Romans. Threefold purpose. 
First of all, to instruct the church in basic doctrines of the gospel. Second, to show the practical implications of that. Basically, Romans 1 through 11 gives some pretty heavy doctrinal truth. Romans 12 through 16 gives some pretty practical outworkings of that truth. But I believe one of the primary purposes, if not the primary purpose, is Paul was writing this book to garner support for expansion of the gospel to unreached peoples. Paul's writing to Rome, but what we find out in Romans chapter 15, very end of this book, is that Paul's ultimate goal is not to get to Rome. He says, I need you to help me get to Spain, because Spain had no exposure to the gospel whatsoever. And I'm convinced why Paul wrote this book was not just to give us a systematic treatise of the gospel. I believe he wrote this book to show those Roman Christians how great the gospel was and why they needed to make it known among all the peoples of the earth, especially those who had never heard it. And he needed their support. He needed their financial support to get there. You know how sometimes when we are going on a, people go on a mission trip and they will write out letters to, to garner support. I'd like to ask you to be praying for this trip that I'm going on. And if possible, if, you were, or if God has given you resources that you can entrust to help this happen, I think Romans is one big missionary support letter. I've never seen a missionary support letter like Romans in our day today. You might try to write one next mission trip you go on, but I think that's what he's doing. He's saying the gospel's too good to be kept from these people. And ladies and gentlemen, there are still over a billion, 2,000 years later, over a billion people who have not heard the precious gospel that is exposed in the book of Romans. Whenever we see the book of Romans, may it compel us to go to the unreached people groups of the world and make this gospel known to them. That's what we get from the book of Romans. Okay, I'm preaching. All right, here we go. Key verses you see listed there, 3, 21 through 26. That's what I call how God solves the riddle of the Old Testament. Old Testament showing the need of man before God. And, and just we see an incredible picture of the gospel in Romans 3, 26, 3, 21 to 26. Romans 8, 28 through 39. I'm convinced one of the most triumphant, if not the most triumphant book in all of Scripture is chapter 8 in Romans. And it comes to a climax there at the end. You look at the overall structure and you see the highlight of those verses, the need for righteousness. Basically what Paul does from Romans 1, 18 all the way to 3, 20 is he to- tells us how bad man is. And it is a bleak picture of the sinfulness of man starts off the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth of God by their wickedness. And from there all the way, Romans 1.18 all the way to 3.20, he just paints a deeper and deeper picture of man's sin. And the first part, first half of those, that, that, that section deals with the Gentiles. And you can almost picture the Jewish people amening in every verse. Yeah, those Gentiles, those are heathens. They're horrible. And then he gets to about middle of the way through chapter 2 and he says, but now you... If you call yourself a Jew, if you rely rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, and he starts to let the Jews have it, and he says, God's name is blasting them because of you. Then he gets to Romans around chapter 3, verse 9, and he says, what shall we conclude then? And he basically says, we're all in the same boat. There is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. No one who does good, not even one. He says, whatever the law says, it says to the, uh, those who are under the law, so that every mouth is silenced before God and held accountable to God. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law because we become conscious of our sin through the law. It is a bleak picture. I can almost picture Paul, whether he's writing or dictating this, in tears by the time he gets to Romans 3.20. It is a very low point. And then whether he picks up the pen or tells somebody else to, he says in verse 21, it's the one of the best transitions in all of Scripture. He says, but now a righteousness from God 
apart from the law has been made known. And this righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are... Don't memorize Romans 3.23 and forget Romans 3.24. We are justified by his grace of those who freely come to Jesus Christ. Don't just get the bad news. Get the good news. <laughs> this is a gospel. It's good news. Okay? So even when you're sharing the Roman road with somebody, just throw in verse 24. It's not going to hurt. I think it will actually help a little bit. So you got it. You got that. Then, then you see, oh, it just gets better. We come by faith. We're declared just before God in Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 6. We, we have we've got sin out there that we're still struggling with. Romans chapter 7 says, I, I don't know what to do. I, it's schizophrenic Paul. I do what I don't want to do. I don't know what I'm doing. What do I, everything I want to do, I'm not doing. And it's like, Paul, you're giving us a headache. And he says, comes to the end. He says, what a wretched my, man I am. And we're saying, what a wretched man we are. And he says, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he gets to Romans 8 verse 4. One. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set us free, ladies and gentlemen, from the law of sin and death. And it just gets better and better and better. And it climbs to the end and he says, if God is for us, who's going to be against us? He didn't spare his own son, gave him up for us all. Will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns Christ Jesus who died and was raised to light? He is the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Who shall separate us from his love? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans is a good book. It's a good book. I'm sorry for those who have to translate all of that (laughs) into another language. All right, so we note the core Christian doctrines that fill this letter. (laughs) The revelation of God, the depravity of man, justification, propitiation. Uh, Maybe one of these secret churches, we're going to dive into some doctrinal truths so we can know what propitiation means. But faith, original sin, all of these things all over this passage, all over this, this book. I would encourage you, read this book, study this book, memorize this book. This book is key to unlocking the entire Word of God. I think it's key to unlocking the whole picture because it is the clearest presentation of the gospel that we have, and it propels us into mission. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.